Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. I took some time away from campus. Now, during my time away, I was hearing things every once in a while, things that were related to the changing of the campus. This is a very important one, one that made me think about whether I really wanted to go back. Danny Aiken, who is the president currently and was the president then, made a video in 2015 for Openly Secular. And in this video, he talked about having a common cause, a common love, and a common belief with secularists. It's an atheistic organization that put this out. And he talks about their common cause. He said, I'm the president of a Southern Baptist. Uh, in fact, you know what I'll do? I'll put the link to this video in the description so you can see it. But he basically said that I, we have common cause with secularists because we care about poverty and environmentalism, and we can join hands on this. And then we have a common love because we can work together with love and respect, not only as friends, this is a direct quote, but as good friends. He's saying this to an atheist organization. And then they have a common belief. He says, no one should be coerced. No one should have, uh, the, everyone should have the freedom to express their belief. No one should be put down because of what they believed. It's interesting with what's going on at Southeastern now with people being targeted for what they believe uh, in a sense that these statements were made. But joining hands with a secular organization like this for the purpose of secularism, I mean, the video is called Openly Secular was really concerning to me. I thought, what in the world is going on down there? Now, at the time, <clears throat> I didn't really have much of a choice but to go back to Southeastern. I had transferred credits from other places and I, I needed to, to finish off. And, and so I didn't have the option of really not continuing there. But that bothered me. And I was w wondering about the direction of the school. Then, <clears throat> and I don't remember, if, I think this was the summer, but the summer of 2015, there was a chapel service in which it was basically against the Confederate flag, the whole entire chapel service. And no one was on the pro-flag side. I think they had a panel of four or five people. No one up there was going to defend the flag. They were all condemning it. And as a history guy, you know, I watched you know, the first couple minutes and they were already making historical blunders and errors that I just thought this is um, awful. They should get someone who knows what they're talking about. They didn't. Um, and uh, and it's, it's interesting because in 2014, I mean, there was a guy, a maintenance guy, I think it was on campus. He had a little Confederate flag on the back of his truck. You know, um, it, it wasn't like a seen as a huge deal. You know, maybe some people would raise their eyebrow. 
Um, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, uh, but and I'll come back to this time away from campus. But when I came back uh, in 2017, I remember I had a little bitty, um, a, a little bitty flag on the back of my truck uh, in honor of my ancestors. I have ancestors on both sides. I honor them both. I think they were both uh, commendable. They both fought for commendable things um, of that war. But I have a little flag, and I remember my wife telling me that there were some students who came by and were just looking at my truck and. Uh, couldn't believe, you know, that that's how it looked to her that they that I had this flag and we're standing there and making all sorts of motions, pointing towards it and talking with one another. And they were really loud, and she said they were condemning it, I guess. Um, and uh, it's only a couple years later, you know. And uh, of course, the the guy who had the you know the guy with the little flag who would be uh, driving around campus, he I didn't see that truck anymore when I came back. Um, but anyway, they had this chapel service. Now, my concern with the service isn't that they're anti-Confederate. It really doesn't have anything to do with it. My concern is it's a chapel service. What are you doing (laughs) talking about this issue? I mean, chapel services, I mean, usually, traditionally, they're devotional. They're for, they're to help the spiritual, the life on campus, to help people with their walks with the Lord, to maintain a right focus. How is this worth your time? How is this? I mean, you can be a Christian and, and be on both sides of this issue. Uh, and I, I just that was my main thing is why are they expending so much energy on this? Having They had a whole panel. They got a bunch of people, people from the community uh, to come up there and talk about this and as if it was a real problem. Now, I want you to start remembering what I said before about Danny Aiken not wanting someone to come express a different eschatology. And there are different beliefs when it came to Calvinism and when it came to creation. Now, look at, you know, put that in perspective when it comes to doing a whole chapel on the Confederate flag, the battle flag. Why is that something that everyone, that we can get a bunch of people, we can all agree, is not a debatable topic. This is a topic for us to join hands on and condemn when those topics aren't as important. Now, do you see that it's, a, it's an issue of emphasis, Right. And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to get at here is there's, there's a heart issue underneath all of this that says that's more important than these other things. And that should be somewhat concerning. Um, so continuing here, uh, that, sh- that chapel happened. And, <clears throat> and I was realizing, like I just said, that it was okay to be dogmatic only about certain topics. Other topics, not so much. So the non-essentials are becoming essential. The essential is non-essential. And I wonder what these things, I wondered at the time, what they had to do with the mission of SEBTS. They weren't directly gospel related. And whereas the other topics, like even eschatology, I mean, these can be gospel, these are gospel related. They're directly related, actually, especially Reformed theology, directly related to the gospel. So why are these things uh, look, you know, we should just have grace on others. They're not essential, but the Confederate flag, no, that's, that's essential. I came back to campus in 2017, and during that year, uh, this is where I'm going to spend probably the majority of my time in my story, because there's a lot to say, but there were three statements that year against either Trump or the alt-right that had some involvement with professors, leaders, and the administration at Southeastern. Um, and this was a curious thing because I mean, I actually tried to look. I, I couldn't, unless they signed the Manhattan Declaration, 
uh, during the whole eight years of Obama, there really wasn't anything. Southeastern didn't put out anything against President Obama. And you'll remember that President Obama, I mean, not only is he com completely against what Christians believe, uh, especially toward, towards his later years, at least, his last term, uh, when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexuality, but he's for unlimited, unrestricted abortion. And he, I mean, this shouldn't be, this should go without saying that Obama's policies, socially speaking, were not Christian at all. They were very antithetical to directly what the Bible says about issues of sexuality uh, and murder. And yet, no statements against him. But three statements in one year against President Trump or the alt-right. Now, one of these statements um, was actually written by someone who is very popular on campus, one of the professors there. Uh, at least he was one of the collaborators who helped write it, and it was signed by a number of the faculty. It was called an open letter to President Trump from America's religious leaders, we need uh, you to speak. And it was in reaction, I believe, to Charlottesville and what happened down there. But a couple of things that really bothered me about this, because this happened either right before, kind of right as I was showing up on campus for that fall semester. Um, it shows that it is more grievous to, this, to these men that a president has some people in his cabinet who CNN calls racist or part of the alt-right than it is for a president who pushes transgender bathroom policy and unrestricted abortion. That's where their priorities are. I'm just, I'm saying their deeds say this, not their mouths, but their deeds say this because they're making and signing statements against the president. And I did not, I should say this, I didn't vote for Trump, all right? At least last, last time I did not vote for Trump. So I don't really have a problem if they want to say something, be a prophetic voice. I think there's a place for that. But why in the world are you um, going after people in Trump's cabinet who are alt-right supposedly and telling Trump he's got to speak out against them when you were silent when it came to Obama, just about. So that bothered me, first of all. The other thing is um, they were interviewed, uh, and Danny Aiken actually was interviewed about this, and he couldn't, he couldn't name, in the statement they said there's, there's three people, I guess, who are part of the alt-right in Trump's cabinet. He couldn't name them. The only one they kept coming back to, it was him and it was another guy, I'm not going to say his name, on campus, who helped write it. They couldn't name the three alt-writers. They kept coming back to Bannon. And Bannon wasn't even in the Trump administration at the time. So, um, so that was kind of a fail. Um, and you, you will only find, if you read the statement, you will find only one place that scripture is quoted. And it's actually just in quoting Abraham Lincoln, uh, the house divided against itself. So it's not even taken in context and it, I mean, it's eisegetical. I mean, the only scripture that was used. There's assumptions about the Constitution that it's an egalitarian document. So the, the people behind this didn't really know their history. And all I could conclude after reading what I think was a, honestly a mess was that it was impossible for this sloppy open letter to have been written by careful historians or exegetes of scripture. I couldn't conceive of it. People who know the Bible just wouldn't have written this. People who knew history just wouldn't have written this. But it was written. And it was written by some prominent folks on campus and was supported by prominent people on campus. And I had asked myself, what was the purpose of this? Why are they doing this when they were so silent on things that were more directly uh, tied to 
evil when it comes to what scripture calls evil. And the only thing that I could come up with is it must be virtue signaling. They must be trying to tell the world that, hey, we're running in the same lane as you on, on this. Uh, we agree with you on some of these things. And, um, and of course, that's a little discouraging. So, so that was kind of one of the first things that I noticed when I got to campus. Uh, the kingdom diversity uh, department, I guess, or, or their, I don't know what you would call it. It's, a, it's, a, it's their kind of like affirmative action segment of the school. They have an office for it, uh, kingdom diversity. They have a staff. I don't know exactly when this department came into being. Um, I think it was 2015. That's when their blog seems to have started. I didn't hear anything about this in 2013 when I was touring campus. In 2014, I didn't hear anything about it. But all of a sudden, I'm hearing about it everywhere. And this is one of the big things that I saw that was such a change. Kingdom diversity, kingdom diversity, kingdom diversity. Uh, every time I go to log into my student portal, it seemed like something from the kingdom diversity was on the Twitter or on the blog. Um, so I couldn't really even avoid it. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to get into the details of what that is, but here's, here's a high point for you. The, I think it's the director, the person who's the head of the Kingdom Diversity, I was reading one of his blogs. I, I, I did not read him extensively, but I just wanted to know, who, what is this? Who is this guy? Why is this being in my, sort of shoved in my face all the time whenever I log into my student account and you know, even going to chapel and so forth? Uh, Kingdom Diversity is hosting things. What do they believe? What's the point? Well, the, um, the director actually, in kind of a roundabout way, endorsed Hillary Clinton in the previous election. Very against Trump, that was clear. But op at the very least, opened up the possibility that you could be, or said, that you could be a Christian and with a good conscience, look at Hillary as the lesser of two evils. And I kind of thought, well, that's probably all I need to know about kingdom diversity. Um, I couldn't believe that that was even a thought, given Hillary's policies, again, just like Obama, that are completely antithetical to Christianity. So um, that, that was kingdom uh, diversity. And um, <clears throat> I remember uh, someone, a friend of mine on campus had actually told me, he wanted to go to this, but that there was a, they were hosting a lunch. And I, I didn't know about this until he told me, but and I did not attend, but they were hosting a lunch to talk about the kneelers at the football games. And I can guarantee you, it was not to condemn them. I guarantee you, given everything else that they put out there, they weren't uh, condemned, and, and nor should they really have been because they shouldn't probably be even having a lunch on the topic. It's a seminary, again. So very, uh, you, know, you wanna talk about mission creep or mission drift from the Great Commission, what does this have to do with our mission? It's a seminary. So, the, but there's a place for talking about what the kneelers are doing and have, forming a position on this. Somehow in the minds of those at Kingdom Diversity, there was, and the university, uh, the seminary supported this uh, full, uh, fully. Uh, the Center for Faith and Culture, which was there before and I was very attracted to, was also cranking out social justice articles, I noticed. Um, and one of them in particular, I believe it was Center for Faith and Culture, I don't think it was Kingdom Diversity, cranked out an article that I saw as I logged into my student account. And it was something like, I couldn't find it, I was looking for it. Um, it might have been since deleted or it's just, it's, it's, on, it's on one of their websites and I just couldn't find it. But it, had, it said something like the 10 re reasons you might be racist. It, it was something along those lines. And it, was, it went through these different, it was eight or 10 
things that uh, should clue you into the fact that you might be racist and not know it. And I thought, oh, oh goodness, uh, I, I might be a secret racist. I should click on this. I should find out whether I'm racist or not. So I clicked on it and I was with my wife and we started going through a few of them. And um, a couple of them, here's, here's a few that stood out to me. One of them was if you look around your job and you find out that most of those in corporate leaders are white, that you don't see minorities around, well, you might be a racist. And I thought, you know, a good example of an institution that has a lot of white leadership. Oh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So it's just ironic to me. Southeastern was pushing this thing, retweeting this thing, or not whether they're liking it, whatever. And it, <laughs> it condemns them. But uh, if you live in a suburban neighborhood and you notice people around you in the suburban neighborhood are higher income and they're white, you might be a racist. Again, I know where a lot of the professors live, not all of them, obviously, at all, but um, I, I know where some of them live, and they're, they're in nice areas. They're in Wake Forest, North Carolina. So I, I thought, you know, what in the world is this doing? It's a seminary. Why is this even being written about? Uh, but, but further, but just the hypocrisy of it. Um, and I'm going to get into why I think these things are happening a little more deeply later, but these are just some of the incidences for our, our consideration. Uh, In-class uh, incidents. I noticed in, in one of my classes there was, uh, this was a bigger one, I'm not going to say what class it is, but um, there was condescension when it comes to uh, congregants or people. So, so Southeastern is training pastors to go out, right? And there was one of these pastors, these future pastors being trained, who had said in class, he talked, again, the football thing, he brought it up, but he said, there are people in my hometown you know, who would judge me because I watch the NFL, because I guess probably because presumably they're boycotting the NFL because of the kneeling thing. And he went on to basically denigrate them. You know, they, you know, they, don't, they don't really know what they're talking about. They're not consistent with uh, Christianity for that view. And I thought the professor might say something. I thought someone else in the, in the class might stand up and no one did. And in fact, the professor seemed to be nodding along. And uh, in the same conversation, same class, um, we had watched a video where a prominent Southern Baptist was on a program with a, a Jewish rabbi. And uh, this Jewish rabbi was con accusing Christians of anti-Semitism and that they're the cause of it. And the professor asked people in the class how they would deal with this. How, how would you teach your congregation differently given uh, this argument that is being posed against Christianity. Now this is, it was not an apologetics class, but this is a great place to use your apologetics, right? And I did say something. I said, I, I really think that Christians should understand a, a Christian historiography, that children um, should not just get a secular idea of education. They should have a Christian idea of education and they should be taught the truth about history. And, um, and the fact is, uh, Christians are not uh, the sole people, which is what this guy was saying, responsible for anti-Semitism. There were times Christians were involved in anti-Semitism, for sure. Um, but uh, it's not obviously part of Christianity. And um, especially, you know, in regards to the Crusades, there's a much bigger story going on here. It's, you know, it's not being anti-Muslim or anti-Semitic uh, that necessarily motivated uh, some of the things that were done 
during the Crusades. There's, there's just a way bigger story here, and people are people. And so, and I went along this vein and said how important it was uh, for Christians not to be taken in by such an argument. Well, someone else in the class basically said, well, we should just apologize. And not only that, we should apologize for slavery, for racism, for you know, Christian, Christians are the authors of all these things, apparently, which is not true. And the, my professor said, he endorsed that and said that, yeah, you know, I think today, in today's climate, that, that would be the reaction. And that's what we should do, It was his implication. Um, we should be doing these things. We should be apologizing. And I thought, okay, um, you know, I, it was confusing a little bit at first. I thought, yeah, there, there's a place uh, for taking some responsibility. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this was exactly what the world is saying to do. This is what the world wants. And it never ends. It is an everlasting hamster wheel of apologies. And we're never granted forgiveness on any of these things. And most of the things we're accused of, we didn't do. And it's not us who did them. It might have been our ancestors, spiritually or ethnically. Uh, but, uh, you know, even in the cases where they did do bad things, it, it's not really ours to apologize for. And I, I started thinking about what the implications of this. And I thought, this is actually not good. This could, this is getting into, this is tampering with the DNA of what forgiveness is. And it's along a neo-Marxist line. It's along a class warfare line. Or a, a neo-Marxist would be a, a oppressors oppressed, and it could be race, it could be gender, it could be all sorts of different things. But there's there's these categories, and these aren't biblical categories, really. So, um, so I noticed that, and I started seeing it everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so, it's not necessarily bad to uh, apologize, or to at least admit, I should say, admit that bad things have happened. But uh, here's the thing: we don't apologize along the lines of the world's own critique against us. I'm gonna repeat that. We don't apologize along the lines of the world's own critique against us. We don't, the world doesn't say, well, you did this wrong. Okay, world, we agree with you, you're right. The world's judging these things based on egalitarianism, uh, which the Bible finds to be an anthema. The, the, the world is, is looking at this not through our lens. Unfortunately, I think what's happened is we have started to adopt and, and place emphasis on, and when I say we, Southern Baptist evangelicals in general, we're starting to place an emphasis on those sins that the world says are sins. And those are becoming the primary sins rather than the things that God says are sins. So I'm going to get into that more, but <clears throat> chapel, uh, same thing, uh, social justice being promoted. I remember one chapel in particular where uh, Tabidi um, I can never pronounce his last name, Anobile, something like that. Um, anyways, he, he had made some controversial remarks at the MLK 50. This is before the MLK 50, though. He had come to campus, and um, he did this whole thing on justice. And rather than going into what justice meant, the, the Hebrew and, and, and what it meant, uh, biblically speaking, he just kind of assumed what really is a neo-Marxist definition of justice and continued on with his lecture. And in his lecture, he said that people needed to be liberal. If, if you think justice is liberal, you need to be liberal. And when he, of course, what he meant by justice was social justice. And it wasn't, it wasn't justice being blind. It wasn't, uh, I believe the Hebrew was shofat. It wasn't shofat. It wasn't uh, the righteousness, the law of God and applying, justice is applying the law of God without discrimination. 
Social justice is literally the opposite of that. It is looking at everyone through the category of race, gender, and whatever else. And <clears throat> Tabidi was saying that's what justice is. And because justice, that word is, he, he smuggled in a whole Marxist definition into that word and then said, the Old Testament says it's important, therefore we should feel it's important as well. And, we, and it's not enough to just tweet about justice. You have to go do justice. What is that? I mean, it, I mean, the only thing I could think of is, okay, adopt the Democratic Party platform, affirmative action. They're already doing that at Southeastern. I, I guess that's what he's talking. I don't know. But somehow everyone's made to feel guilty in the room <laughs> that we're not doing it. Um, and he, he even, I remember a history guy, just this made me sick a little bit, but Edwards and Whitfield were condemned because of their association with slavery. And, uh, and I don't know how in the world he deals with slavery in the Old and New Testaments, um, but to, to condemn men of their time who were trying to do this as biblically as they could with what they knew, uh, it's, it's, bit, it's presentism is what it is. So this is, this is, that was one chapel message, but that was not unique. There were a number of chapel messages about social justice. And since then, since I've left, um, that, that has just increased uh, from, from what I know. Uh, there was silence, though, and here's maybe a more important point. There was silence on issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. Now, these things, um, they're important, too, wouldn't we say? Maybe even more important in some ways. I mean, millions of babies getting murdered, that's kind of important. I'm not saying it never was spoken about, but I never heard it. Never. Not once that I hear it spoken of in chapel. But social justice, heard it talked about quite a bit. It says something, where the priorities are at. Uh, some of the buzzwords, this gives you a flavor for campus. These are some of the things that I heard terms when I got back to campus. Gospel issue. That's not a gospel issue. That is a gospel issue. Most of the time, it would be in a sentence like this. Racism is a gospel issue. Justice is a gospel issue. Racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. I'm going to go later into why this was a um, why this buzzword was not helpful, <laughs> uh, but that was a word that I hadn't really heard before. I think maybe I heard it a couple of times when I was there in 2014, uh, but in 2017, oh my goodness, it was just running off everyone's lips. What what a gospel issue was. Uh, the other issue, uh, other buzzword, and this one I think I might have heard more was engaging culture. We need to engage culture. And it, it, mean, it meant ma making being a, a voice in the culture primary. So Southeastern's mission, right? They were the mission school to go out the Great Commission to the tribes and nations of the world. Well, engaging culture now is somehow fused with this. That's part of the um, mission of Southeastern because you hear it all the time. It's not their official motto, but you just, it's everywhere. And I really do think this is, a buzzword for wanting to be loved by the world because gospel issues are immigration, racism, poverty, uh, things like what Danny Aiken said in his video for Openly Secular. These are the, happen to be the gospel issues. Um, I didn't really hear abortion being talked about as a gospel issue. It wasn't brought up. But immigration, yeah, that was brought up as a gospel issue. Opposing uh, Trump's wall, yeah, that's a gospel issue. How are these things gospel issues? So that was one of the, um, the other <clears throat> terms that was brought up. Uh, the other thing, and I heard this phrase 
multiple times, so I, I might as well mention it. Republican doesn't mean Christian. People, this was kind of a, I don't know if it's virtue signaling, but it felt like it. Where you know, I remember one night in class, I turned to a classmate, hey, uh, the election's going on right now, the Virginia gubernatorial election. I've been watching this thing. Man, it, you know, I'm really hoping the Republicans can pull this one off. And he looks at me, he goes, well, Republican doesn't mean Christian. I'm thinking, no, I didn't think it did. <laughs> now, obviously, the Republican Party, though, allows Christians a seat at the table. The Republican Party uh, forwards a lot of th moral things that Christians find uh, morally acceptable and denounces things that Christians find morally repugnant. Um, there's really no contest between the Republican and Democratic parties when it comes to that. The Democrats booed God at their convention a couple years ago. I mean, there's just no contest here. But um, to a lot of the younger evangelicals, it's definitely, it's not a binary choice. They, and their, their outrage is for the Republican Party. Now, why would that be? I think that a lot of it has to do with rebellion against their parents. And their parents might have been part of the religious right. They're embarrassed by that. I'm going to talk about that more later. But, um, but that's kind of my explanation. But that was, that was said a lot. Um, I wondered who the marauding group of people who said Republicans were Christians were. Uh, you know, and, and because there are older people in the religious right who see voting Republican as your Christian uh, duty, that's maybe what they're thinking of. But uh, to a lesser extent, I definitely heard white privilege talked about. Um, but I, I, yeah, I shouldn't say a lesser extent. I heard it talked about. Uh, empowering women. Yep, that's a phrase. In fact, right now, if you go to Southeastern's their college at Southeastern's, their website, you're going to find a woman uh, holding a sign that says, I am going to empowering women. So usually you would put like something like a nation or you're going to go preach or teach, something related to the Great Commission, specifically what the Great Commission says to do, to go out and preach the gospel and to all the tribes and tongue and nations. Well, this woman stepped outside of the language of the Great Commission to put, I'm going to go empower women. And, and she may mean well by that, but that phrase obviously uh, has a sort of a toxic origin. And its meaning is derived from those who, the authorial intent, right? <laughs> what we're supposed to learn in hermeneutics. So uh, those phrases are definitely um, on the campus quite a bit. And uh, that gives you an idea of what campus life is like, what people believe. Now, I went to a professor about these issues because I said, I can't, I don't know if I can be part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I was more and more thinking that I would just have to forget about uh, being a pastor or um, a leader in any organization that was run by Southern Baptists because I couldn't endorse this stuff. And if this is who Southern Baptists are, then I mean, that's not me. So I asked a professor about it. I said, what do you think? And he said something that should shock and scare uh, anyone out there because we're used to this on secular campuses, but have this on a Christian campus. He told me that they'd fire him if they knew what he really thought. He said, if I... If I if I told people what I really thought, they would fire me. That is startling. And that gave me the answer that I was looking for. He didn't tell me not to be involved with Southern Baptists. But he, he tell, told me what the conditions were like. And, uh, and that's frightening, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, and, and it was in the context of talking about the social justice stuff. Uh, he, he kind of encouraged me to keep my mouth shut about this. Um, and for the most part, I actually did uh, when it comes to Southeastern. I wasn't speaking out against anything at Southeastern, hardly at all, but um, I did make an exception. And I'm going to tell you about that a little bit. So uh, I was down there 
and I think it's still going on, but it was really full, it was, there was a lot of heat uh, towards this issue, the Confederate Monument debacle in North Carolina. And of course, uh, the Republicans were fighting with the governor about what to do. And there was a podcast put out by the Center for Student Diversity. And then um, there was an article in a prominent, well, it's a, it was a secular paper, uh, and it got picked up in a couple papers. Um, and it was from, it, it used one particular professor on campus, and the, the article had said, it was something along the lines of Confederate monuments should go to the ash heap of history. Obviously the journalist who picked that title out. But if you read the article, it, that's exactly what it said. <laughs> it said that Confederate monuments were erected at a time when the Klan was running around and they were to intimidate blacks and that's their purpose. And you know that's basically my summary, uh, some summary of it. Now, the thing that concerned me when I read this was that there, there's implications when it comes to hermeneutics. If you're going to interpret a statue or even just take any historical book or anything, uh, a monument would be included in this, the Bible would be included in this, and just impose your meaning onto it. Say, oh, you know, the Bible was written at a time when a lot of sexists were running around trying to intimidate women. Uh, Roman Empire had slavery in it and uh, they were pretty brutal. And, you know, when Paul writes this, I mean, clearly he's just trying to intimidate women when he doesn't want women to preach or you know, pick your example. But it'd be very easy to take the same logic this professor applied to Confederate monuments and apply it to scripture. And the thing that makes this even more obvious is I've seen hundreds of Confederate monuments. They all pretty much say the same thing to duty, to honor. I mean, it's to ideals, it's to sacrifice, it's to those who fought and paid the ultimate sacrifice. And there are interpretive markers, the plaques that were put on these monuments by those who erected them. So if we're going to apply authorial intent, which is one of the primary rules of hermeneutics is to look for authorial intent, then we would have to conclude that when the author said what these monuments meant to them and the original audience that they were making them for, that's what they meant. Otherwise, I mean, think about it this way. It's ridiculous if you think about it any other way. If you say, oh, no, they were, they were to intimidate blacks. It was all racism. Okay, so let me get this straight. In a culture where everyone's racist already, right? All the white people, they hate the black people. There would have been no problem with them putting up a marker that said, hey, we're erecting this to intimidate blacks. There, or just to put some, some racially charged language in there. They could have done it. And there would have been no consequence, right? Because everyone's racist. Yet they didn't do that. So that leads us to believe that what they were saying when they said the reasons for why they erected these monuments are actually true. And if we interpret them according to what the media believes about them, what we're doing is we're taking modern interpretations and we're imposing that upon statues that are over 100 years old. Well, what if we did that with the Bible? What if we took modern interpretations and just imposed them back onto what the text meant? It would destroy the whole of Scripture. That's why this is important. It has nothing to do with Confederate Union. You can be as against the Confederacy as you want. This should concern you because this would destroy biblical hermeneutics. Thank you for listening. To hear the third and final installment of this podcast, please continue to the next episode.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.